Hey Changemaker, welcome to this episode, our first episode with an inspiring changemaker, and what a guest I have for you. Lena Abarafe is a global women's rights expert and a gender equality advocate with decades of experience worldwide. Lena is a powerhouse. She is an activist, an, a writer, an academic, and an aid worker, and she has worked in over 20 countries around the world. Um, Afghanistan, Haiti, Central African Republic, Papua New Guinea, and many more. She was the executive director at the Arab Institute for Women at the Lebanese American University for many years, and she serves on a range of organizations in a senior advisory capacity. She's on the international boards of She Decides, the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, the Global Women's Institute, and others. Lena is a writer and a speaker, and her energy is contagious. In this episode, we speak about being an activist at this time when the pushback on women's rights around the globe is a reality for many. We talk about the new chapter in her life as she's writing a book and figuring out her next steps. She shares her advice on dealing with hopelessness and what brought her to this work a long time ago. Lena inspires me and this conversation gave me so much hope. I did a little happy dance when we hung up. I hope you feel the same and that Lena will inspire you to know that we are connected and we are in this together. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Lena Abarafe. Lena Abarafe, thank you so, so much for being on the Hate Changemaker podcast. Um, it is such an honor to speak with you, and you're always such an inspiration. So just so much gratitude. I am thrilled. I'm honored. I'm delighted. I'm very excited about it. We've got a lot of ground to cover, I'm sure. Mm. Yes. Um, and let's, I mean, this change, Changemaker podcast is just really so much about um, storytelling and really the inspirational change makers that will, you know, inspire us to take action. And so it's really about your journey. And I know that in a previous interview that you did with Girls Globe a few years back, um, you mentioned how something sparked in you as an early teen and how since then you've sort of been an involuntary activist or a change maker. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what what actually happened? What what sort of sparked for you so that you became a change maker? Oh, well, I think, you know, for starters, being born into a female body already is enough. Um, I am, <laughs> I have faced uh, the complications of that since birth. You know, you realize at some point as a young girl that the world just doesn't see you as equal. And I don't know when and where those messages started, but you absorb them, you swallow them, they sit like a rock in your stomach and they build and build until you finally learn how to describe them. You finally learn the words to articulate the injustice, the lack of dignity, respect, equality, all of those things that you're facing because the world just doesn't see you as deserving of it. So, you know, those little, those little bits of anger that just build in my stomach uh, as a young girl, you know, on top of that, I'm Lebanese and Palestinian. So I come from conflicts that are, um, the backgrounds that are filled with conflict. Uh, so there's a lot of tension inherent in my upbringing. I took none of that for granted. You know, and again, I think just being a woman is a conflict and a war zone in and of itself. But to add the Lebanese and Palestinian elements and being on the move and living in Saudi Arabia as a young girl, which is a 
very interesting place to start thinking about gender issues. And then moving to the States, also at a very uncomfortable age and, and time politically in America. So, I mean, it's never easy to be brown or to be Arab in America, but it certainly wasn't in the mid 80s when I moved. So all of those things, you know, I knew that I was different and that something was wrong and that the world wasn't right. And I was angry about it and I wanted to fix it. But the language came to me when I was 14 and I was in a class, I was in a high school class. It was called comparative women's history. And I talk about it all the time because suddenly I understood my history. I understood where I belonged. I understood what was happening. And I understood that it wasn't just me. And that sense of um, universal sort of connection to something that is so tragic, you know, what a what a horrible uh, commonality to have, what an unfortunate shared anger to partake of. But I felt like this is where I belonged. And in coming to understand women's history, it was really about the history of violence against women. So there was more anger, you can imagine. I mean, now this is built, this is a boulder in my stomach that just wants to explode. And so I was 14 at the time, and I said, that's it. I don't care what, I don't care where, I don't care how, but this is what I will do. And I've been at it ever since, you know, and I dare say it's been more than 30 years I've been talking about the same thing, which also then leads me to ask, why am I still talking about the same thing for 35 years? Why haven't we, why haven't we moved? So that anger hasn't gone anywhere. Unfortunately, it's still there. Mm. Yeah. And as you say, you've been working for gender equality or women's rights for decades. And in over 20 countries, you've written books about the situation in Afghanistan. And given now the pushback for women's rights that we've seen there in the past year and, you know, the things that are happening across the world, how do you actually, you know, re refuel your reserves when things are going backward? How do you find hope to continue? Well, I, I remind myself that this is bigger than me. You know, I feel like it's easy to be overwhelmed and exhausted. I think that's the fate of every activist, of every kind of bleeding heart, of everybody who cares about what's going on with other people, who cares about the world. You are destined for disappointment. You know, if you are looking for a career that is going to bring you joy, um, yes, there are joys in this, but it's not built on success, unfortunately. I mean, I keep saying, I never wanted to do this job. It wasn't that I set out to sit in the misery of, of women and girls. I never wanted to do that. I could have been an artist. I could have, I don't know, maybe I had other talents. I never explored those talents. I was too busy being angry. So I think if people are, are looking for happiness and joy in this field, they will not find it. If they're looking for a quick fix or instant, immediate gratification or impact or, or massive global change at the, the click of a button, they're not going to find it. This is something that you go in because you can't not. You can't not see the things you've seen and you can't not act on them once you've seen them. And that was that was my fate. So I said, all right, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to keep finding a new ways, other ways to do it. I mean, one example of you know how I've refueled is I kind of reprogram myself. You know, I used I spent over 20 years in the field. So working in emergencies from one to the other to the other. And then I said, okay. Maybe I need to continue doing the same work, but find a different way to do it. So then I moved into academia and I was running this academic and activist institute, the Arab Institute for Women, an amazing place. Um, I did that for seven years. And then I have now said, actually, in the last six months, OK, 
now I'm repackaging myself again because I'm still committed to this cause. I will do it with my last breath, but I need to find other ways to do it. So now I'm independent. I speak about it. I write about it. Um, I use my voice. I use my words. You know, I say, these are now my weapons. I don't need to be on the front lines of the war to do the work. So I do the work through my speaking and writing. And the words are the weapons. They don't kill you. It's like a slingshot. They might just sting a little bit. And I think maybe sometimes that's what we need. Just a little, you know, pull the rubber band back and zap. So people wake up a little bit. Um, so people uh, people see things that they, they didn't otherwise see. So I try and write and speak in a way that helps people understand that this is all around us. This is not about other people over there. It's about you and me and and everyone in every country, in every space, in every time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in seeing that it's all around us, we start to take it personally. And when we take it personally, we are motivated to act. Mm-hmm. So that's how I try and uh, I try and ignite other people and how I keep myself mm-hmm. on fire as well. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love how you say that it's not that you want to do it. It's because you don't yeah, like you can't not do it. Um, and I mean, you've spoken a lot about anger. And I think that's something that a lot of people are feeling now is that they are feeling angry. They're feeling incredibly disappointed. How do we ensure that that anger and disappointment doesn't consume us into hopelessness and inaction? Because I think, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful to, you know, to feel that I can't not do this, but if I'm just feeling hopeless, how, yeah, how do you sort of stay hopeful even when it feels hopeless? <laughs> you know, it's about the micro interactions. It's about the very small stuff. You know, if I anchored my hope on um, major policy change, you know, those things are possible, but they're long term or, um, you know, rights that are gained or Uh, discriminations in society that are eliminated, you know, I can't anchor on those things. It's really about the the minute sort of interactions I have with individuals, you know, a conversation I have with a young woman, um, you know, a little program that I'm able to run or a small pocket of funding I'm able to channel here or there, um, or even with the, the words that I use and the articles I write, you know, sometimes one person will come to me and say, I never thought of it that way. And I think, Right. You know, and I measure in those micro changes uh, and micro moments, because I think it's through those micro moments that we build the momentum for a movement. You know, the idea that like everybody starts to say, oh, what? Wait, wait a minute. That's that's not what I expected or that's not how I thought about it before. And they start to think differently. And it's the it's the cumulative effect of all of that that's going to create this wave. You know, what is a movement if not a bunch of people who are willing to move and you know move in the same direction? One would hope. So that, I think it's it's that type of those types of conversations. You know, something like this where a spark is ignited, and I you know even for me it happens all the time. Or I'll be talking to somebody and we'll come up with an idea together, and I think ah oh, that's magic. You know that wouldn't have happened had we not had this conversation. So mm. that's that's the type of stuff that keeps mm. me going. And also, I don't see paralysis as, a, as an option. You know, it's very easy to say, well, I can't do anything, so I won't do anything. But, you know, there's going to be a thing where you say, all right, I can't sit. I can't just sit here. I can't sit mm. here and let it and let it go by and pretend it doesn't involve me and pretend that I'm not needed. You know, and I think it's that mm. feeling 
of the inability, you know, maybe I have a high energy level. It's the inability to be idle, you know, to say, I, okay, I don't do this anymore, maybe at the expense of my own health and sanity, like I did Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. But, you know, I still, I still will do it. Mm. And if it makes a difference to one person, then it's that's good enough. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I must say that this podcast is pretty much a selfish act that I really, really will, like, I really hope will inspire many, but I, I'm doing it for my own it. sanity. And it. it's just, I'm so grateful for the conversations that I get to have because it's given me so much hope, so much energy. And yeah, I'm just so grateful. Um, so on the topic of your own well-being how do you you know how do you manage your own well-being what kind of self-care routines do you have when you're you know you just need to take care of yourself as an activist yeah I think you know it takes a long time for many of us at least you know for for this generation I'm going to speak like an oldie you know we didn't like we didn't have the language around self-care we didn't have the understanding and we definitely didn't feel like it was socially accepted in the way that it is now so you know at least that is changing and it's becoming the norm and you're able to you know put your foot down and say here's my line I'm not crossing it you know this enough I need a break you know we now are more comfortable articulating what we need I think back back in the old days, you know, we weren't really doing that. We just like bulldozed ahead, you know, at our own expense. And I think we didn't really understand that we're no good to anyone else unless we're good to ourselves. You know, so for me, it took a it took a while to put it together. Um, for instance, now, you know, I, I live in New York. Uh, I live, I love the life that I have for restaurants, and I, I have tickets to shows and opera, and I'm able to to do things that, that look very normal that you cannot do when you're living in a, in a war zone, um, you know, sleeping in a tent or in a container with colleagues. I have a, I have a dog and I'm a big advocate of animals as, uh, as therapy, as portable, hairy self care. I mean, the guy is, (laughs) you know, he, he doesn't know he's, he's 19 pounds of, of therapy and uh, amusement and calm. So, you know, it's, it's how, how you bring those elements into your life that uh, that ground you. You know, people have made people have been able, you know, again, before, like we didn't really think we could make time for a personal life or a family or anything and then and maintain this kind of career. But now mm-hmm. you know, people are doing those things in, in weird and wonderful ways. You know, I love the positive externality of a global pandemic has been that we demand flexibility. We demand to prioritize our lives. There is nothing magical about being in the same building from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You know, I, I love face-to-face and I re- I miss it. You know, we'd have a great time together face-to-face with a cup of coffee. We would, this podcast would be eight hours and not one hour. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, recognizing people's need for freedom and flexibility that opens up all this creative space. You know, I, when we started Zooming, the beginning of the pandemic, people were constantly apologizing for their babies and dogs and, you know, the partner in the background and the dishes. And then and I said, no, no, don't apologize. this is your life that we, you, we existed before in this artificial division of, of home and work. But please, you know, do the dishes while you're talking to me. Bring the <laughs> bring your pet and your kid into the street. You know, we don't we don't live these segmented lives. So let's at least integrate that. You know, I thought it was beautiful. It was it was honest, is what it yeah. was, and it's still. And we've we've kept that, even if we are 
I don't know if I say post-pandemic, I have no idea when, when we can say that, but, you know, we've kept that level of, of understanding of our, you know, how most of us are wearing pajamas under our, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, we haven't made a difference, have we? No, we're probably more productive in pajamas. Oh, for sure. And I think, I mean, we were on a call together um, today earlier and it was quite a long one and I (laughs) had my two kids I, yeah, I was like ironing the, their bead plates and I was like doing lots of different things, making them sandwiches. I love it. And then... <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love it. Huh? Yeah, I mean, because we can we can be there, you know, we can be present and we're typing away our comments and I'm listening and I'm absorbing while also, you know, making my coffee, feeding the dog, you know, yeah. I think that's, I appreciate that kind of freedom. Yeah. You know, I think that's great. Mm. Yeah, it does work for me too. For right, sure. and this this next generation is going to grow up uh, in a way. I mean, in a wonderful way, maybe also in a dangerous way. Unapologetic about that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. the stuff that we tiptoed around. Imagine twenty years ago. I sound like a grandmother. Twenty years ago, <laughs> saying I'm taking a mental health day. Mm-hmm. People would be like, "What now? You know, you're fired." I mean, <laughs> there be, we just had no. We just were worker bees with mm-hmm. no sense of of space and I think this is this is a critical conversation Mm. that is you know a blessing from an accident yeah yeah absolutely I think people have really been given whether they ask for it or not the the ability or the time to actually reflect on their priorities and Mm -hmm. and yeah that's that's a good thing um, but Lena, as we speak, I feel like we can't have this conversation without touching a little bit about what's happening in Iran right now. And um, with the many brave women and others who are taking to the streets in Iran and burning their hijabs and cutting their hair in protests um, of the murder of Masa Amini um, by the so-called morality police and the gender apartheid that has been happening there for a very long time. Um, what is it that we must know about what's happening in Iran right now? And how can we do something about it, those of us who are, who are outside of the country? Well, you know, the challenge in Iran is that women have long been victims of a very repressive regime, right? And you said the so-called morality police who are on the prowl looking for even the most minute kind of violations, you know, violations as determined by sociocultural and religious norms that really are just, you know, men's interpretation to suit patriarchal powers. I mean, these are, um, this destroys what is beautiful about Iranian culture and turns it into something that is oppressive against women. So this has been going on for a long time. And this is the, you know, as we say, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back and has brought it to international attention when it's really been there kind of under our noses since the beginning. Mm. The challenge that I'm facing now in conversations about Iran is that I keep saying, you know, it's not about Iran only. I mean, let's not fail to make the connection between their morality police and our morality police here in America. We don't call them that, but it's the same thing. Mm. You know, We are not covering our hair, but our eyes are certainly covered. You know, we've been blinded by what's going on here while our rights are being stripped away. Mm. So it's not just in those kinds of places over there, you know, and there's a danger in talking about, you know, other women over there, Muslim women, the veil, Mm. you know, we love that. Mm. We love to fetishize that kind of stuff. Mm. Meanwhile, you know, even if you don't see 
the veil, even if it's an invisible veil, we're all wearing one right now. You know, we're all forced into certain roles that are restricting our bodily autonomy and integrity, telling us what to wear, where to go, who to uh, who to sleep with, if if when how to have babies. All, you know, all of those conversations um, are needed now more than ever all over the world. And I wish I could say that we're moving in the right direction. You know, the thing it feels like a really strong fundamentalist backlash that is global mm. so you know how are we as activists as um as people as individuals who care about human rights and social justice you know as women and girls primarily but you know everybody who really needs to be involved in this fight mm. because it cuts across uh, so many different aspects of our identities and involves all of us you know how are we rising up to say you know you've crossed this line and no mm. more mm. And, and i also wonder you know for us why it had to get this this mm. far why we let it get this bad so you know my I worry for women in Iran I don't know um how where things are going to go or how you know I also my heart is so much with Afghanistan as well and you know what's going to happen there and I look at the country I just left a few years ago Lebanon as they continue to descend into insecurity um and seemingly hit rock bottom and then go further Mm. Um, women and girls are going to bear the brunt of that as well. So, you know, this is the way that we seem to be coping with everything that's going on in the world, you know, exerting greater control and influence on women and girls. And this just, you know, there there has Mm. to be something that that stops this. Yeah. Lena, I love how you, and I I read a piece that you wrote in your own medium, on your own medium page as well, where you really talk about, or you, you know, noted this, this, otherness that we can fall into where we talk about it's about them over there and it's not about us um and I feel like that is such a relevant conversation and I mean I'm speaking to you from Sweden right now where you know Sweden is a country that has for a very long time had a very you know a a reputation of being on the forefront for gender equality and and even here you know we're we're seeing now with you know the conversations about what's going in Iran you know, a lot of activists here are saying, well, you know, there is a debate right now where we have, you know, the second largest party in Sweden wants to ban the hijab altogether in, in this country where we have, you know, how women get, are they dressed? Are they not dressed? You know, it's all about control in any way. And, and even, you know, many other issues of gender-based violence and, mm-hmm. and, and things that are, you know, a constant in our lives, even here. So I think that I, I really love how you talk about that. It's not about someone over there it's about all of us and it's a fight that we have to be a part of together Um, absolutely control is the word you know it's all about the reinstatement of patriarchal power which actually mm. never went anywhere you know it's like it's always been there it's just it's having its moment you know Mm. unfortunately patriarchy is having its big moment in the sun right Mm. now everywhere from Afghanistan to Arizona you know and everything in between Mm. um So, you know, it is just about the idea of control of women's bodies and lives and choices and voices, all of that. And that tends to come down to what is religion or tradition. I mean, again, in the U.S., like there's a massive religious movement to restrict our right to decide about uh, abortion and to choose what to do with our bodies. You know, that's a religious movement. It's no different. You know, it's you know, we say it glibly, but, you know, there's the Texas Taliban just as much as there is in Afghanistan. So, you know, it really comes down to, you know, for me, the body. 
first and foremost, because that's where it all starts. You know, it's about your freedom to, and your right to live a life free of violence. So violence against women in all of its forms and sexual and reproductive health and rights. You know, when you have this ability, this right that has never seen any of them granted to us to live free from all forms of violence. At the same time, following from that, you should be able to decide what to do with your body. It is your space. It is your sacred space. So bodily autonomy and integrity for me is really has become the kind of sacred ground. And it, the movement to me, it, it's all different manifestations of the same underlying control, you know, telling women to cover, telling women to uh, that they could be jailed if they if they abort, telling, you know, all of those things are really the same to mm. me. I don't distinguish between them because it's all about control over our bodies. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I really love that. And I love how I mean, there is no scale that we can use when we're oppression is still there. Right. Um, and. Yeah, I, I I love also the fact that when you talk about all of this as not something that's happening over there, it also, you know, creates the solidarity where, you know, as you said in the beginning, it's when you can make it personal, you also are driven to take action. So, yeah, I really love that how you're, you know, framing all of this that we're seeing into something that we mm-hmm. can really take on personally. Um, yeah. You know, I know that people's for like people's first reaction when I say things like that or when we hear things like that is resistance mm. to say, no, 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 well, that's not me, that's not here, that's not now, that's not us, that's yeah. not this country, that's not this community, that's not this religion, that's not. And people get very defensive, mm. you know, but the but really when we start to open our eyes and look around, it is all of us, you know, and there's just such a there's this initial wall, you know, you find yourself sometimes defending. Uh, this ground, even when you don't believe in it, you know, you come and you kind of poke, poke holes at people's beliefs, and they become, they become more sacred, you know, you almost are are turning them into a much bigger thing. But really, it's about, um, rather than being defensive, just being observant to it, you know, even if you don't believe it to say, all right, that's, I'm not sure I buy it, but that's interesting. And let, and Mm -hmm. plant that seed in your head. And if you do so, you know, this is for the non-believers amongst us, if you do so, you will see that it actually is everywhere. You know, you don't need to have conversations with too many women before some story comes up about something, yeah. uh, some uh, some incident of violence or discrimination or oppression, some story. We all yeah. have a story. Mm-hmm. And the the need to voice them and 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 he, register them and then act on them is is critical now more than ever. You know, in Sweden, here, in, in wherever, everywhere. Yeah. And I I also want to recognize the fact that I think, you know, we're seeing this backlash. We're seeing a lot of, you know, uh, pushback on like for women's rights, um, reproductive freedoms, um, a lot of different things that are happening across the world. Um, But I I, I, I sort of just think about it as it's always darkest before dawn. And that is sort of what's happening right now that, you know, there is this, this big resistance because the patriarchy is trying to remain its grip on power, but it can't last forever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's Mm. true. I I love that. I love that, that way of looking at it because at least it gives us some hope that we can turn a corner and something will change. Yeah. 
And I think yeah. we we have to, you know, we have to hang on to that belief. I think, you know, hope is a hope is a choice, right? And we and we really don't have any other choice. Yeah. I mean, surrender is not an option. Mm. It will it will only get worse mm. um, if we let it. Yeah. Yeah, and Lena, you're on your own journey right now. And you, as you say, you've been executive director for the Arab Institute for Women um, at the Lebanese American University. And now you've moved on into, you know, you have several senior roles within sort of boards for international organizations and campaigns. And um, and I believe you're also writing a book. Uh, this is, is that true. something? Yeah. I mean, do you want to share a little bit about what you're up to right now? Yeah, well, you know, it's, what's interesting about books is that when you have, when you have the words inside you, uh, they have to come out. You know, it's, I can explain it very graphically, but I won't. You know, you just, you have to let them, they have to come out one way or another, they're coming out. So, you know, that's almost the curse of the writer. If you have the words, they cannot just sit there. So I've, I wrote my first book in 2009, which was on women in Afghanistan that was built off my doctoral research. This year in February 2022, I released part two of that because of everything that was going on in Afghanistan. I felt like I should complete the story. Now, the next book that is coming out in the spring that I'm working on right now, actually almost finished with a draft, uh, co-authoring this book on 50 years of Arab feminist activism. So looking at uh, going wide, looking at the region, understanding what feminism means, what activism means, what has been the mo- the high moments, what are the challenges and the fissures, what's the future, and focusing very strongly on young women. So collectively, we interviewed close to 200 people between surveys and conversations and key informant interviews and all of that to better understand what's going on in the region, because the region for me, even if I live there, even as I'm from there, remains kind of a mystery. You know, it's always in people's too hard baskets with the worst social indicators, the most complications, the largest number of protracted crises that will continue for as long as I'm alive and on and on. And people think, oh my God, the Middle East is so complicated. And that's true. But at the same time, the population is very young. 30%, I think, of the population is you know under 30 or whatever that is. I don't know if that's the right stat, but there are a lot of young people and they're mad. You know, who cares about the numbers? What you see on the street is that they're the ones leading movements. The Arab Spring, for whatever it did, you know, it it, it sprung and that was the end of it, um, was led by young people. All of these movements, you know, and even if we include Iran in that, although I'm just focusing on Arab countries, you know, this is a movement led by young women as well. Mm-hmm. So what is that saying? You know, it really is telling us that young people have had enough of this. And rightly so. And so they're the ones rising up. And that's the energy I want to tap. I want to understand how they define themselves, how they organize, what, uh, you know, what makes them mad and what makes them hopeful. So that's a little bit of that book. But there's also another book. You know, there's a, there's the book of like the book that really sits in my stomach. You know, I talk about things that sit in your stomach. Mm -hmm. The one that is there that needs to come out is, is personal. Is putting together all of these stories and experiences and whatever, and kind of writing myself into the narrative. So something like a memoir that I have been trying to put together for ages, uh, and to, I want to see where it goes. I need uh, uh, clarity on my story 
deadline, which I think I have. I need a publisher. I need, you know, some kind of idea. I definitely need some social media support, calling all people who are better at social media than me. Oh, <laughs> I know. I think, oh my God, can't, can't I just eat it? Do I have to tweet it first? You know, like I, I don't come from a social media mentality. And so like you realize you miss out on a lot of things when you don't, you know, as I say, you don't tweet it before you eat it, because I think that's, that's an instinct so that I seem to not have. Um, so, you know, all of that, having said that, by the way, I got myself on TikTok, which is a great experiment. <laughs> wow. Well done. <laughs> yes, I know. It's, I said to myself, oh, you're going to laugh because I said, I'm, I'm just going to put myself on it, put myself out there, not filter. I, you know, I'm a one take TikToker. I don't edit. I don't have any graphics. I wouldn't know how. I don't have any cute animated things that come into my screen. There's nothing sexy about it. It's me holding up the phone to say, here's what's making me mad today. And I just release that anger, ideally in under 60 seconds. <laughs> and then I send it out into the world and I just let it go. Uh, and that's been really fun. I've done it, you know, on the street, like when I see a man kind of aggressing a woman on the street and, you know, her trying to fight him off, I, I do it. You know, I talked about Iran, I talked about sports and, and the link with sports and violence against women. I have all kinds of conversations. So, you know, all of that to say, like I'm cooking up all of these different things because I feel like, I feel like I need to use my voice uh, in a little bit of a different way. I need to reach a, a different audience. And so I'm kind of, I'm poking at things, you know, through trying to write this personal book, through TikToking all of my little angry moments, whatever, to kind of put something together that is a good use of me in this third phase of my career. Mm. Oh, so exciting. I'm really looking forward to having those books in my bookshelf. Well, not in my, in my lap, in my, you know, reading them, not just sitting there. Um, but wow, they sound amazing. And I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and yeah, and I also think I need to get TikTok just because you're on it. Like I've had so much resistance for that app, but maybe I'll just have to get it now. <laughs> well, people told me all the time they said, you know, you speak so spontaneously and you can just sound off about anything. You know, if you do it in 30 seconds, you can teach that. I thought, really, you know, I'm not gonna, what am I gonna do? Dance? Like, I don't I didn't understand the premise at all. I mean, I was as resistant as a, you know, I, I move like a Galapagos turtle when it comes to social media. I really am a disaster. But, you know, I've learned to just enjoy it. And I've also said, okay, I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to do it with any kind of flair. I'm gonna do it as, as raw and honest as I am. And that's, you know, that's what I've got. And if that appeals, if there's a little niche audience for that, beautiful. If not, you know, at least I've still been like honest about, about with myself. Because if I started worrying about animations, I'm sure they would, you know, they'd be nice, but I'll never get anything out there. I would, I would be paralyzed, you know, and I think also to your point about paralysis and action and whatever, what, what paralyzes us is the fear that we're not going to, we're not going to be good enough. But meanwhile, you know, whatever we do is enough. Mm. You know, it's better than not doing anything at all, whether it's, you know, your little acts of activism uh, in your hometown or it's my um, my low tech TikToks or whatever it is, yeah. you know, get don't stay. Staying silent mm. is the worst yeah. crime. Mm. And that's the worst. You know, that's that's a loss because people are not going to agree with you, mm. but you have to get your voice out yeah. there. You can't not. Yeah. 
it was with that, mm. you know. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I think that there's just, I mean, for me, the past few years has definitely been so much work about like working through my the stories that I tell myself about like what people think about me and you know starting to come to that age where I'm like well you know what I don't care (laughs) you know I can do it anyways because I feel that it's in my heart and I you know have that and I think it takes it takes some work to get there and it's brave yeah yeah Mm. I think that's true it does take some work Mm. And we, you know, again, this is weirdly generational. You know, I swear I'm not going to blame everything on our generation, but, you know, we just didn't, we didn't grow up with that ability to kind of self-reflect or it wasn't really part of what we, you know, we were told, and especially for me as a, uh, you know, uh, immigrant in the U.S. and coming from these backgrounds that were complicated and, you know, there's no going back and you got to succeed and, mm. you know, you've got to got to work your butt off because there's no choice. And it, this is the only way you're going to survive. Mm. You know, these things were very much existential for us. Like it was really a question of survival and carrying this weight of like the immigrant parents who who sought safety in America. And, you know, we did it for you. And so you better, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) so it was it's a lot of that kind of weight. And then you realize, okay, wait a minute. You know, Mm -hmm. I I might I might need to do things differently. And how you how you maybe uh, pay respect to all of that effort and mm. and the difficulties and you know getting up to to safety and all of that, but also the space to uh, adapt to that and to do things you know culture evolves right. Mm. That's what I keep saying. Mm. You know the danger that we have now again all over the world, and I keep going back to women's rights stuff because clearly that's where my head always is. You know the wor- words like like culture and tradition that we talk about. Um, as if they are static and as if they are used to constantly repress women. When at the same time, you know, we need to reclaim all those things and say, actually, we're going to own that word mm. culture. We're going to own that word tradition. And we're going to rebrand it the way that suits yeah. us rather than use it as a word to constantly beat us down. Mm. You know, it's happening here. It's happening in Iran. You know, it, and my own example as well of, you know, choosing to do things differently when I was a young person. Mm. I think, you know, defying some of those conventions and saying, wait a minute, I, I got I got this, this culture bit, but this is my culture mm. now. Yeah. Yeah. The culture, the norms, the stories we've been told, the stories we've been telling ourselves. I mean, there's so much reflection that needs to be done um, for us yeah. to, you know, fully live in the purpose that we that we have, that we feel feel that we are compelled yeah. to to live. Um, so absolutely yeah. and sometimes you just got to make it mm. up you know yeah sometimes you just got to figure it out as you go mm. along like keep turning yeah you know I keep saying like every time there was a fork in the road maybe mm. I went the wrong way but like it led me to really cool places and experiences yeah and you'll never know if you don't take action right so I think that it's the action taking that leads to the biggest learnings and we won't learn all of those lessons by self-reflecting in the basement you know with ourselves mm-hmm. it really does take mm-hmm. you know relationships and an action um so absolutely yeah. that's the activist story mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. you know you you are choosing the course of action mm-hmm. because it what what's an action going to yeah. do no, absolutely nothing but, you're going to be right where you where you yeah. so for the people who are listening who feel compelled to do something but don't know where to start like if they're you know oh, young yeah. people who who yeah just don't know where to start like what what would you say to them you know there's a lot of listening that we need to do I know we love to all express our opinions but let's go back to the Iran story because you asked me that and I didn't answer you 
because we talked about a hundred other things. But you know, for Iran, for, as one great example, people are asking, "What can I do? What can I do?" Well, you know, we have to listen to the voices that are in Iran or you know Iranians on the outside who are speaking about this and who know what's up. Listen to those voices, follow them, amplify them. You know, to use social media terminology. Pay attention because they'll tell you what's going on. First of all, help them spread that word because right now social media is being uh, curtailed, if not cut completely. So you, know, you can amplify those voices, and that's critical. Mm-hmm. That's one very clear action. There are some fundraising opportunities, and you know, I think that's great too. But really, listen to the voices on the ground because there's no substitute for that. Mm-hmm. For Afghanistan, you know, people ask me all the time, "What can I do?" And I said, "Well, look, you know, Afghan women's organizations are the ones that should have been in the lead." They are leading now that we've all dropped Afghanistan and forgotten about it because of so many other things that have hijacked our very short attention spans. So listen to the voices on the ground, you know, listen to the people who are implicated. I think that's a global truth. You know, you want to help somebody, let them tell you how to help. Mm. Like let the people who are involved articulate to you what you can do. And then you go out and do that. thing. You know what I mean? Like Mm. it ends up being very, very simple in that way. And, you know, we want uh, sometimes we want to own those things or we want to take control of those things. And we can't because that's just a different manifestation of the control that is inflicted on these women in the first mm. place. So there is a lot of you know listening and understanding and then and supporting in the ways, you know, people will always be able to tell you if you create the space for them, they will always tell you what they need. You say, how can I help? Tell me, you know, oh, here are three things. OK, well, I can do this one thing. Great. And go and do mm. it. And I think that's amazing. You know, young people have so much, again, social media power and savvy and a kind of they naturally gravitate to that stuff and movements flare up like that with, you know, they just tweet one thing and next thing you know, it's a million followers and a, you know, I don't know how it explodes, but it's extraordinary, mm. that kind of power. Mm. And, you know, they can use that for such, for such good. Uh, and I love it. Mm. You know, I think it's, it's fantastic. So how to kind of combine and say, all right, you know, let's, uh, let's collectively pick a cause, uh, you know, a couple of people to follow, uh, an issue, a campaign, a whatever, fundraising appeal. I don't know. And just spread that and it will ignite the world. Mm. It's just, it, it feels incredibly easy to take that on. And I love that. Mm. I love that energy. I love the kind of contagious element of it. And I think that's wonderful. But, you know, people want to do more mm. at the same time. And I feel like, there's, you know, listening and amplifying and tweeting, whatever, you know, from your phone that uh, is one good thing, but it's not enough good thing. You know, there is um, the face-to-face stuff, the conversations and experiences and opportunities that you have in those places or working with people who are involved. So those are harder to do, but, you know, at the same time, if you really want a career in women's rights or any other human rights activism, you know, how are you going to get your hands dirty? Mm. Because you won't do it from the keyboard, you know? Um, And I think that's always a challenge. But for me, what I did is I just started volunteering in the places that I cared about. I volunteered domestically when I was a, a student in the U.S. And then I just tried to get experiences and opportunities and kind of, uh, add myself into Things with people who were, you know, going out and doing this and that or getting fellowships and and, and stuff um, and overseas experiences because I really wanted to, I wanted to learn it by doing it. You know, I'm not the kind of person who learns uh, from the pages of a a book, ironically, as a writer, (laughs) or from a screen. You know, I really, I need to get, I need to get my hands dirty. I'm very experiential. 
which is which is why I think like the one interesting thing that I hope to do if I ever get this memoir off the ground is turn it into something more, something more engaging um, that brings ideally young people to the table to talk about what they can really do. Mm. You know, this was my, it'll be my activist story, but other activist stories won't look like that. Mm. Um, but then, you know, what do other people's activist stories look like? Yeah. I want to hear yeah. that. Yeah. Amazing. And I think that those are the stories that really inspire us. And I, I agree with you and I, you know, listening and, you know, volunteering, t- taking action is also about listening and learning and starting there. Um, and, mm-hmm. and taking action after. Lena, thank you so much for inspiring. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. And yeah, we're really looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to following your, your the, the next phase of your journey, the books that are coming Anytime. and all the amazing projects you're involved with. So thank you so much. I love it. Anytime I wake up every day for this, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is what lights my fire. This is what I do. I was, I was born to do this. You were. I'll do nothing else. Mm-hmm. So, so, so keep it going. Let's, let's keep it going. I love yeah. it. Amazing. And I'm so grateful to you. And I love Girls Globe and I think it's so cool. And you, you just, you have an open-ended yes, basically for any questions <laughs> you would ask me. Yes. You want to do it? Yes. Yes, yes of course. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hey Changemaker with me, Julia Wicklander. It's been an honor to have you along with me learning and growing as a changemaker. If you know of anyone who would appreciate to join us on this journey, please share this episode with them. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, please rate and review this podcast. That way more people can find it. Let's build solidarity to create ripple effects of positive change around the world. Remember, you are powerful. You're a change maker.